Hello, folks. Welcome to First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. This is Will Aitchison, and for the next 45 minutes or so, I'll be taking you on a tour of recent developments in the public safety labor world. And I want to start with three pieces of legislation because we have some huge developments out there around the country. Uh, first of all, the latest in the way of comprehensive, uh, as they're called, police reform measures comes to us courtesy of Maryland. In April 2021, the Maryland legislature became the first in the country to repeal a peace officer's Bill of Rights. Yes, that's exactly what I said, repealed the entire Peace Officers' Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights in Maryland was the oldest in the country. It was a fairly comprehensive one in that it described hearing procedures and investigatory procedures for law enforcement officers. Uh, there had been absolutely no evidence that anything in the Bill of Rights was traceable to any particular incidents or rate of police misconduct. But nonetheless, in the name of police reform, the legislature simply canned the Bill of Rights. So from now on, of course, uh, at, at law enforcement labor organizations in Maryland, they're going to be focused on trying to get into their collective bargaining agreements the pieces of the Bill of Rights that were most important. It's going to be an uphill battle. I think that's easy to forecast uh, because of where the politics are in the whole area of police reform. And repealing the Bill of Rights wasn't the only thing that the Maryland legislature did. And by the way, all of this was over a gubernatorial veto. Uh, the next thing that it did was to create a new statewide use of force policy and it provides that officers who violate the new use of force policy and cause serious injury or death can be convicted and sent to prison for up to 10 years. And what is this new use of force policy? It takes the old reasonableness standards that uh, apply nationwide, uh, thanks to a Supreme Court decision called Graham versus Connor, and replaces it with a standard that force has to be necessary and proportional. Uh, we know under Graham versus Connor that the assessment of reasonableness is made based upon the information that the officer has at the time and looks at what would be the scope of what a reasonable officer would do. What we don't know from what Maryland did is whether this necessary and proportional standard is based upon information the officer knew or perhaps is based on information that was developed later that the officer did not have any clue about. We're going to have to see how that plays out over time. Now, some of you may be asking, how is it that the Maryland legislature can do anything uh, to that is inconsistent with a Supreme Court decision, inconsistent with Graham versus Connor? And the answer is a little bit complicated. Bear with me. What Graham versus Connor did was to establish the standards for liability under Section 1983 of the Civil Rights Act. 
you can have government being liable to its citizens under state law, under circumstances that are stricter than those that are uh, would come into play under federal law, federal law such as Supreme Court decisions or federal statutes. A state could always say, look, police officers cannot use force except in these circumstances, even if what would be declared off-limits under that new use-of-force statute might well be permissible under federal law. So state law can grant more rights to citizens than federal law does, and of course one of those rights might be the right to be free from the use of force. So that's what the Maryland legislature is doing. The third thing that the Maryland legislature did was to require every county in the state of Maryland to have a police accountability board and to provide that police chiefs will not be allowed to impose lesser discipline than the levels of discipline recommended by those boards. Uh, so it's a tremendous transfer of disciplinary decision-making from police chiefs, sheriffs, to these police accountability boards. So absolutely a huge sea change in Maryland. And I'll get back to it in just a moment, but I want to go to the other two uh, measures that are out there that uh, ha have come to us in the last 30 days. The other two are, if you're on labor side, uh, much better news than what happened in Maryland. They are both local ballot measures, and both of them were voted on uh, on May Day, on May 1st of 2021. The first was a drawn-out pitched battle uh, between most of the government of the city of San Antonio uh, and a lot of contributions that came from all over the country uh, lined up against the San Antonio a police Officers Association. The question, should there be collective bargaining for the association? Now, to understand this, you have to understand a little bit about uh, Texas law. Texas does not have a statewide collective bargaining law, at least not in the ways that those of us who aren't in Texas think of a statewide collective bargaining law. There's no equivalent of a PECBA or if you're in California, the MMBA. There's, n there's none of that in Texas. Instead, there's a state law that allows local jurisdictions to engage in collective bargaining if their citizens so choose. And San Antonio is one of the few jurisdictions in Texas uh, that has collective bargaining for both law enforcement officers and firefighters. Uh, what this ballot measure was about was an attempt to eliminate collective bargaining. And the focus in uh, the election was on binding arbitration of discipline. The proponents of repealing collective bargaining said, look, uh, what has happened is we have a series of arbitrators who have come in. They have reversed discipline uh, well over 50% of the time. Uh, the police chief can't even run 
his or her own department here, we need to get rid of binding arbitration, and that means we need to get rid of collective bargaining. Now, the police association on the other side is saying, wait a minute, uh, we haven't filed arbitration appeals in 50% of disciplinary cases. It's far less than 5% of the time that there have been disciplinary appeals, far, far less. You're running a dishonest campaign. Well, how did the thing end up? By a whisker, 51% to 49%, San Antonio voters rejected the attempt to repeal collective bargaining. Now, they're not giving up. The proponents are not giving up. Uh, they are pointing to the election and saying, this means we need to reform the discipline system, even though we lost. We'll see how that all plays out. Uh, the other ballot measure just up the road from uh, San Antonio in Austin was a ballot measure run by the Austin firefighters. And what did this ballot measure do? Austin was under, or at least firefighters in Austin, were under a meet and confer system of collective bargaining. Austin was another one of the cities in Texas with collective bargaining. And a meet and confer system, when you're all done with uh, the bargaining process and you still have an impasse, eventually the employer is going to be able to unilaterally uh, impose its last best offer. The firefighters said, look, though, what this does is this just this sort of meet and confer system, it drags out bargaining forever and ever. You can have situations where if you've got like an evergreen clause in your contract that keeps the contract in full force and effect, you can have a situation where you have an expired contract for three or four or five or ten years, uh, and that does nobody any good. So we need an answer from a neutral third party and arbitrator, and the voters buy a, get this, 82 percent to 18 percent margin approved binding arbitration for Austin firefighters. Not Austin police, but only Austin firefighters. So mixed news out there uh, from uh, the standpoint, I think, of pretty much everybody if you're involved in law enforcement. What happened in Maryland is the worst of all possible disasters. Uh, and in, in Texas, you have a couple of shining lights for labor organizations that are out there. Um, now, going back to what happened to, in Maryland, uh, I want to give you some advice that I have been giving people uh, about uh, police reform and lessons that we can draw from uh, the police reform efforts that, that are sweeping the country. I mean, they're uh, pretty much in every state legislature in the country. Uh, and these are lessons that uh, I'm going to try to be teaching. We've got seminars coming up in, in May and June. I'm going to repeat these at those seminars. But I want to tell all of you now just you know, what, I, what I'm thinking about what police reform has done and the shape it has taken. So lesson number one, things can happen overnight. Some of these police reform bills are introduced and passed in a manner of days. In one case, in a single day. And uh, that tells you you have to be prepared. You have to be nimble. You have to be agile. You have to be listening to 
uh, whatever uh, the drum beats are in your neck of the woods as to whether or not uh, something that happened in Maryland can happen in your state. Uh, secondly, there's a preferred method for the police reform advocates. And it's a method that people who are involved in lobbying and legislators called, uh, call gut and stuff. Sometimes it's called gut and replace. And what is gut and stuff? Uh, this is what happens late in a legislative session where there's a bill floating around out there that has nothing whatsoever to do with police reform or whatever the uh, particular issue of the day is. So say it might have to do with whether or not there are subsidies for milk producers in the state. And this is a bill that's just going nowhere. It's been introduced and it's just, there haven't been hearings on it. Uh, and what will happen is the sponsor of the bill at the last moment in the legislative session will simply amend the bill so that it no longer deals with milk subsidies, but all of a sudden it deals with police reform. The entire text of the bill is replaced with this gut and stuff message. And then the legislature has a matter of days or even hours to act on that bill. Sometimes there's not even any hearings uh, that are held by the House or the Senate in whatever particular state it is. And within a manner of matter of days, uh, you have a bill that has been introduced and passed in both houses and signed by the governor with no public testimony on the issue, no opportunity for anybody uh, to analyze the bill and point out uh, problems with the bill. That is the preferred method. Uh, I have cataloged uh, in a PowerPoint presentation the police reform efforts in 22 different states. Uh, by my count, in 20 of them, the gut and stuff message was used. Third lesson, uh, and this is for all police and fire unions out there and police chiefs and fire chiefs, legislative relationships are critical and can't be ignored. You cannot be holding your legislators at arm's length and say, hey, you know, we just don't get involved in politics in our state uh, because, you know, we all get soiled when we lie down in the political yard. Well, uh, I'll tell you what, politics is coming to you whether you want it or not. And the only way to influence the end result is to build relationships. Next lesson, the facts really don't matter. Maybe not even at all, and certainly not as much as messaging. Did it matter down in San Antonio that, uh, you know, less than one in 10 police disciplinary uh, uh, sanctions imposed by a police chief were actually ever sent to binding arbitration? No, that didn't matter. Nobody really heard that message. Because the message on the other side, police chiefs can't discipline because the police association is always referring these cases to arbitration. Even though that was untrue, that's what resonated. The messaging resonated. And that means that if you're going to be involved in the police reform effort, 
uh, or collective bargaining reform effort, whether you're police or fire, you better make sure you've got your messaging in place. Next lesson, nothing's off limits. Maryland taught us that, right? Whoever thought that a legislature would completely repeal a police bill of rights, and yet it happened, and it happened quickly in Maryland. Next lesson, political parties don't matter as much as you would think. Police reform legislation has passed in what I think of as triple D states, where the House and the Senate and the governor's office are all held by the same party. It's passed in triple R states, and it has passed in states where control is split. So, for example, California's passed police reform legislation. It's a, a triple D state with uh, supermajorities in uh, both the, the equivalent of their House of Representatives, they call it the Assembly there, uh, and their Senate. Uh, Iowa, which is a triple R state, very, very conservative politically, has passed police reform and, and uh, states where control has is split. Uh, Maryland, for example, or Minnesota, police reform has passed. And then the last message I think that's out there is it's time to rethink uh, traditional approaches to politics. Whatever you've been doing politically, it's time to sit down and and really rethink them. Uh, it's time, I think, for police, it's overdue for police to have a strong national voice, a strong national unified voice. Police simply don't have that. Firefighters do with the IAFF, but police don't. And now you can see the direct harm from the lack of that strong national voice. Now, uh, on to the cases. Uh, and I want to start with a decision of a court of appeals in the state of Washington. It's also, I think, broadly under the heading of police reform. Uh, what's going on, and this is going on nationally, you heard me say it last month in the podcast, is there's an attack on the binding nature of disciplinary arbitration. It's not just for a police. One of the cases I gave you last month from Illinois was a firefighter case, uh, but certainly a lot of these are police cases. Uh, and we have just had a court do something, a court of appeals do something in Washington that I think is, is pretty stunning. So what the, what the court did was to uh, tinker with, as in completely change, uh, what's known as the public policy doctrine. So uh, let's recap. What's the public policy doctrine? Arbitration is typically thought of as being final and binding. But there are some exceptions. For example, if the arbitrator's decision was the result of fraud, it's not final and binding, it can be challenged. Uh, the main exception is what's known as the public policy doctrine. Now, under this doctrine, if an arbitrator's award violates a clearly articulated and, uh, and dominant public policy, a court will refuse to enforce the arbitrator's decision. And the whole idea behind that is uh, when a court affirms an arbitrator's decision, it's actually, in a way, putting its own imprimatur onto the case. And uh, so a court simply cannot enforce a decision that violates a clearly articulated public policy. 
Now, when applying this public policy doctrine, courts around the country, from the United States Supreme Court to federal and state courts, they've been very careful to distinguish between cases where the employee's conduct violates public policy and those where the arbitrator's award violates public policy. And this distinction really comes to light in termination cases. So courts are very quick to stress that when they're reviewing an arbitrator's opinion that, for example, reduces a termination to a suspension, their focus is not whether the employee's behavior violated public policy, but rather their focus is whether the arbitrator's award of reinstatement violates public policy. Put another way, and many courts have said this, is there a public policy that says that if an employee engages in this misconduct, whatever this misconduct is, the only possible sanction is termination. And if there is such a public policy, then an order of reinstatement would violate the public policy. But the problem for those who are challenging arbitrators' opinion is there really aren't public policies that say that anywhere, right? Uh, There is, for example, a public policy against dishonesty for public employees. Uh, And I think everybody agrees with that. For example, on the law enforcement side, uh, dishonesty is, is written into the Brady Uh, doctrine. It's written into state licensing statutes like post statutes. I think we can all agree public employees should not be dishonest and that's public policy. But does that public policy mean that if an employee is dishonest, the only sanction that is possible is termination? Or rather, does the public policy mean that an employer should not tolerate that level of, or that whatever that conduct is, the dis- dishonesty, but that the employer has a variety of choices of how to deal with it. It could be termination is appropriate. It could be a suspension or demotion is appropriate. It could be even that a reprimand is appropriate. So you just very, very rarely find any public policy that commands that termination and only termination is appropriate for a particular offense. Okay, so that's our background on the public policy doctrine. Sorry if I went on a little bit too long on that. So uh, what's this case all about and what is it that the Washington Court of Appeals ends up doing in this case? And this is, by the way, a very, very a notorious case in the state of Washington when the arbitrator rendered her decision. There were headlines in local Seattle newspapers, uh, editorials. A federal court judge who's overseeing a consent decree said, "Uh, I think I might have to reopen these proceedings because it's clear that, uh, you know, police reform isn't happening. So this is a very, very public case. It involves a longtime Seattle police officer by the name of Adley Shepard, uh, Shepard was fired uh, after he got involved in an incident uh, that the department determined violated its use of force policies. What happened? Uh, he was trying to take a woman 
uh, into custody, uh, and uh, she uh, kicked at him, and he responded by punching her in the face. She was handcuffed, uh, causing a fracture of her orbital bone. Uh, she, uh, the department decided to fire Shepard. He appealed to what's called a disciplinary review board. Disciplinary review board is a, a tripartite board uh, in Seattle. It has one management appointee, one labor appointee, and then a neutral arbitrator. And the arbitrator uh, reduced the termination to a 15-day suspension. Uh, she condemned what it was uh, Shepard did. Bud said, look, there's some mitigating circumstances here. Uh, Shepard used force reflexively after the woman kicked him only two seconds before, causing stinging pain. And, uh, and in fact, uh, the arbitrator points to, and it's very, very important in the uh, arbitrator's decision, the decision of this disciplinary review board, that uh, the testimony was uncontradicted that what Shepard did was within his training. He did not violate the training he had received. A training officer testified to that effect. Uh, and the arbitrator said Shepard did uh, exactly what uh, he had been trained to do. And the city didn't counter that evidence. So in the end, the arbitrator says, you know, uh, he did, I think, violate the use of force policy, but termination isn't appropriate. Uh, so the city challenges the arbitrator's decision, challenges the 15-day suspension, uh, and challenges it by filing a lawsuit in uh, Superior Court, the lower court in the Washington system, and the court rules in the city's favor. And I think a lot of us saw that and thought, well, you know, trial court judges and state court, they don't get to see many labor cases. We kind of expect that their decisions will be all over the map. And in fact, uh, that's uh, what probably has happened here. Uh, but then the union, it's called the Seattle Police Officers Guild, appeals the overturning of the arbitrator's decision to the Washington Court of Appeals and the Washington Court of Appeals uh, upholds the decision overturning the arbitrator's opinion and says that the arbitrator's opinion violates public policy. And in doing so, what the appeals court did was to entirely upend the central question in the public policy doctrine. The question, the court says, is not whether there's a public policy mandating termination of employees who engage in particular behavior, but rather whether there's a public policy that expressly prioritizes rehabilitation of employees. You see what the court's doing there? It's saying, look, what we need to see in the context of this use of force case, uh, before we overturn, before we get into the whole decision of whether we should overturn this arbitrator's opinion, what we need to look for is a public policy that says that officers who use excessive force should be rehabilitated. And in the absence of that, we think the public policy is that officers should be fired. So what the court has done is in done a complete 180 
on what the public policy uh, rule means in the state of Washington. It, it, in essence, overturns a decision not just of the Washington Supreme Court, but the United States Supreme Court on what the public policy doctrine means. Public policy doctrine has always mean that you go looking for a statute or some dominant public policy that mandates termination. The court is saying, look, unless there's a public policy that mandates rehabilitation, we can freely uh, overturn arbitrators' opinions if we think that what the employee did violated some public policy. Now, this is a radical, radical departure from the public policy doctrine. Uh, I, I can't tell you how much of a fundamental shift in disciplinary law this is. Uh, so it, when you see such a radical shift, it may well be that, that this litigation is not over and that the next stop is going to be in the Washington Supreme Court. We'll see. Next up, I want to talk about a firefighter case out of Louisiana. And this is more as a general reminder that uh, everybody needs to be paying pretty careful attention to how your state's statutes in the area of workers' compensation are structured, because you may end up finding some things in your statutes that are quite surprising to you and uh, actually uh, end up hurting uh, public safety employees uh, because of the normal risks that public safety employees encounter in their jobs. Uh, so uh, here's what this case is all about. Uh, it involves a fellow named uh, James Hartman, who worked for the St. Bernard Parish Fire Department in Louisiana since 1990. He eventually rose to the rank of district chief, and during the course of his employment with the fire department, uh, Hartman was repeatedly exposed to uh, what were clearly injurious levels of noise. Uh, so, uh, as you know, firefighters used to not wear uh, hearing protection when they were uh, driving in their rigs and incredibly loud, their sirens and, and the like. Uh, lots of different injurious levels of noise that are possible in a firefighter's work environment. The result, as far as Hartman was concerned, was a permanent uh, partial hearing loss uh, and even maybe more than partial. So. Hartman, in 2006, uh, tells the department, look, I'm starting to have problems with my hearing. And he undergoes audiograms in 2008, 2014, and 2017. And each of these tests shows a gradual increase in hearing loss. And the last audiogram, which was performed by a doctor by the name of Dr. Bodhi uh, in 2017, showed a 42.2% uh, hearing loss uh, in, in both ears for uh, Mr. Hartman. Uh, Bodie uh, gave the opinion that Hartman's repeated exposure to loud noises for extended periods of time in his job as a firefighter, that that was, and I'm quoting, likely a contributing factor to Hartman's bilateral sensory neural, sorry about that, hearing loss. Hartman 
files a claim for workers' compensation, and he seeks benefits that are known as permanent partial disability benefits. Permanent partial disability benefits means you're not completely disabled from doing your job, but you do have some sort of permanent disability. And typically, the, uh, a state will have a schedule uh, for most disabilities where it'll lay out, you know, if you have this disability, this is how much money you get. Uh, so if you have a 42% hearing loss and the maximum benefit for hearing loss is $80,000, uh, then you get $32,000 um, uh, by way of workers' compensation benefits. So Hartman files this claim for, uh, they're typically called PPB, permanent partial benefits, uh, and the department opposes the claim. And the whole thing ends up before the Louisiana Supreme Court. And the court upholds the department's denial of Hartman's claim, even though Hartman had a 42% hearing loss that was caused by the job. There was no contrary evidence. Uh, everybody agrees this was caused by the job. Uh, so why? What's going on? Uh, and the court is saying, look, there's a couple of workers' compensation statutes that we have to deal with here. One of them limits many, most, permanent disability benefits to those situations where the disability is caused by, and I'm quoting, anatomical loss of use or amputation. There is an exception, however, and the exception is made, there's many exceptions, but this one in particular, is made for claims of loss of hearing, but only where the employee, and I'm quoting again, and this is the language that is so, so important, only where the employee suffers a permanent hearing loss solely due to a single traumatic accident. The problem with Hartman's claim, the court found, uh, is that since Hartman admitted that his hearing loss resulted from gradual occupational exposure to excessive noise, there wasn't a single traumatic accident. And thus, Hartman is not entitled to any permanent partial disability benefits. The court says, look, the, the words of this statute are clear and unambiguous. We don't have a choice. Uh, when the legislature has expressed its intent by using clear and unambiguous words, we must follow whatever those words say. And I'm quoting from the, the court's opinion here. The court says, uh, the expert medical evidence uh, submitted by Dr. Bodie concludes that Hartman's repeated exposure to loud noises for extended periods of time, 1990 to 2017, is likely a contributing factor in his hearing loss. Obviously, the court says, repeated exposure is not synonymous with a single exposure. Neither is a contributing factor synonymous with a single factor. The expert evidence in this case clearly disqualifies Hartman from permanent partial disability benefits. Well, Hartman argues that, look, this means workers' compensation has left me without a remedy. 
That can't be. Uh, uh, or if it is, it means I can sue my employer. And the Supreme Court says, no, Hartman, it's, you do have a remedy under the law. And what is the remedy that you get? Uh, you are eligible for other categories of benefits. So um, you are eligible for uh, medical treatment for your condition. And that will have to be paid by the workers' compensation system. So you do have some benefits. You just don't have permanent partial disability benefits. So here, here's what I mean when I say this should really focus us on uh, workers' compensation laws in particular, but really any employment-related statutes. Every once in a while, dust off those statutes. Uh, talk about them with your lawyers uh, and see how those statutes could be improved. Let me ask you a question hypothetically. If I had told you that a firefighter submitted uncontested proof that he had lost almost half of his hearing because of his on-the-job exposure to loud noises. Would you have thought that firefighter could have received disability benefits through the workers' compensation system? You probably would, but not in Louisiana and not in other states besides Louisiana. Workers' comp laws vary tremendously from state to state, but there are some overriding themes. This is why it's really important to periodically engage in a review of relevant statutes to see if they fit uh, what you want them to accomplish. I want to conclude this podcast by going down to Florida for a very unexpected result. Uh, would you think that there would be a state statute that would prohibit an employer from disclosing the names of officers involved in an officer-involved shooting? Uh, well, here's what happened in Florida. In a couple of uh, encounters, separate encounters, uh, people who were committing crimes threatened Tallahassee police officers with deadly force. In each case, the officers responded in kind. And following each of the encounters, so you have officer-involved shootings in both cases, following each of these encounters, uh, the city uh, announces its intent to disclose the identities of the police officers to the public. Uh, we see this all the time, right? It happens all over the country. Well, the officers and their union... Uh, which in this case was the Florida PBA, the uh, Police Benevolent Association, uh, filed a lawsuit uh, opposing the public disclosure of the officers' identities. Uh, the trial court ruled in favor of the city, and the PBA went to the Florida Court of Appeals, and the Court of Appeals said, you know what, PBA, you are right. And under Florida law, under a couple of provisions in the Florida Constitution, an officer's name does not need to be disclosed to the public. So what could there possibly be in the Florida Constitution? And the answer is something called Marzi's Law. Uh, and Marzi's Law is a victim victim's rights section of the Florida Constitution that gives crime victims uh, certain rights throughout a criminal process. So it gives them the right, and I'm 
I'm going to give you a series of quotes here. The right to due process and to be treated with fairness and respect for the victim's dignity. Uh, the right within the judicial process to be uh, reasonably protected from whoever the defendant is. Uh, and the right to have, and here's the key part, right to have the safety and welfare of the victim and the victim's family considered when setting bail and and dealing with other aspects of the uh, criminal investigatory process. Now, there's another constitutional provision. Now, I think of it as an opposing constitutional force that was at work in this case. And this is Article 1, Section 24 of the Florida Constitution, if you're counting. And this is what is broadly referred to as the sunshine provision in Florida's constitution. It says that everybody has the right to inspect or copy any public record made in connection with the official business of a public body, except with respect to records exempted or made confidential by this constitution. So on one hand, you have Marzi's law that protects victims. On the other hand, you have Article 1, Section 24 of the constitution, that is a right-to-know law or a sunshine law. And the Court of Appeals says, you know what? We can actually reconcile these two laws in the context of this case without there being a conflict. And most importantly, we need to know or consider the sequence of these laws. The uh, right-to-know law came into the Florida Constitution in 1992. Marzi's Law was added to the Constitution 26 years later. Um, and so uh, we have to presume that when Marzi's Law was added to the Constitution, that those who were involved in the process understood the rules with respect to Article 1, Section 24, the right to know uh, provision. So here's how the court ends up reconciling all of this. The court says, and I'm quoting, the express purpose of Marzi's law was to preserve and protect certain rights of crime victims. A police officer meets the definition of a crime victim under Marzi's law when a crime suspect threatens the officer with deadly force, placing the officer in fear for his life. The fact that the officer acts in self-defense to that threat does not defeat the officer's status as a crime victim. Now, the city uh, doesn't uh, give up uh, at that point. It, it has additional arguments to say. Uh, the, the city says, look, uh, if this is the rule that we can't publicly disclose uh, the names of officers who've been involved in officer-involved shootings. That means we can't hold law enforcement officers accountable for misconduct. Court of Appeal says, no, that's not true at all. Maintaining uh, confidential information about a law enforcement officer, including the officer's name, who's a crime victim, doesn't stop you from doing an IA investigation, doesn't stop you from doing a criminal investigation, wouldn't even uh, stop you from prosecuting the officer. Uh, it, instead, it just simply does one thing. It says you can't disclose their names if they are a crime victim. The city also argues that, 
Uh, well, you know, the text of Marzi's Law focuses in on whether or not uh, the victim of a crime, uh, whether or not this information that's potentially disclosed could be used to locate or harass the victim or the victim's family. And the city says that there's no evidence of that here, and the court isn't buying that at all. The court says information about a police officer's name could be used to locate that police officer, uh, like, duh, right? Uh, we do have the internet. Or to harass the officer or the officer's family. We've seen firsthand, we've seen protesters go to cities' house, or the, the houses of law enforcement officers. Therefore, our conclusion is Marcy's Law exists as an exception to the right to know law. They are not in conflict with each other, and the city may not reveal the identities of the officers involved in these shootings. Wow, significant result, right? Uh, and I'll give credit where it's due. That's good lawyering on the part of the PBA's lawyers there. All right, that's it for this month's podcast. I hope uh, that when you join me, I hope you do join me in next month's podcast, I hope that the information is a little bit cheerier than I have been today, but we are in very, very troubling times, particularly on the police side of the table. Uh, and I'm afraid that we aren't through this, uh, remotely through this. Uh, and we just have to be ready uh, for the future and adapt. Um, so, in any rate, uh, with that, I hope to see you at one of our upcoming seminars. Uh, we've got a seminar in June on the rights of law enforcement officers being held at the Luxor Hotel in Las Vegas. And we are rapidly uh, getting close to maximum capacity for that seminar. So if you're interested, you should go to LRIS.com and register. And then in July, we'll be going to Nashville and we'll be uh, staging for the first time in person our Public Safety Wellness Conference, where we hear from a panel of really accomplished speakers about psychological and physical wellness for public safety officers. Uh, and just maybe, just maybe, I'll be able to sneak into town and get some Nashville hot fried chicken. Don't tell anybody, though. So with that, thank you for joining me, uh, and I hope your month is a great one. This is Will Aitchison signing off.